Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Irish Balance podcast. I cannot believe I'm on episode 20. It's so exciting. So today's episode is another interview, um, which I'm really excited to bring more of to my podcast. If you haven't heard of me before, hello and welcome. My name is Kira, and I run the social media and blog The Irish Balance. You can find me at The Irish Balance on Instagram. Um, and my message um, as a medical doctor who's specializing in public health is all about bringing a healthy and sustainable balance into our day-to-day lives. And that's what I share through my podcast and my blog and social media. Um, and today's episode, I'm really, really excited, um, is going to be all about nutrition. And it's going to be part one of two. You'll be really glad to hear. Um, so I have UK registered dietitian from Ireland, Maeve Hannon, with us for today's episode. Welcome, Maeve. Hi, Kira. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Very excited to be here. Me too. We had a little bit of a false start before we got started on finally getting to record this. Oh, so yeah. Technology. Technology. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> we struggle through. Um, yep. I'm, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm really, really excited to have uh, part one of two with you today. Um, first of all, I guess I like to get my guests to sort of introduce themselves to the listeners because I think you can tell your story better than I can. Um, I've obviously, we've met up a few times and are kind of mm-hmm. friends now, which is absolutely lovely. Um, yes. And it was really nice to meet up recently and chat about this uh, episode and sort of plan it out a little bit and see what we, content we might bring to people. Um, so I'd love to sort of hear from you about your background and your sort of career to date and um, how you got started with um, your Instagram dietetically speaking and you can tell our listeners all about that too. Sure um, so I'll start at the start I suppose um, I'm from Bray in Ireland um, and then I went to university to study dietetics up in Northern Ireland in Coleraine hmm. and I suppose I've always been interested in food and health and nutrition and I also decided that I really like to work with people and then when I found out that a dietitian is all about translating the science of nutrition into everyday messages that people can implement, that's really where I wanted to work. Um, so that's kind of why I wanted to be a dietitian. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I went up to the north and I studied there for four years. And that was great. Absolutely loved it. And then I moved over to the UK to work as a dietitian. So I was about four and a half years in the north of England. So I was working in Sunderland Royal Hospital. So I kind of lived between, yeah, it's really good. Um, I lived between, I suppose, Newcastle and Sunderland, um, like during that time. And in like the jobs I was doing, so I started off as a rotational dietitian. Um, So that's really when you're first qualified, um, it's a really good way of getting a grounding in different areas of nutrition. So you'd work on lots of different general and medical wards and outpatient clinics and group education sessions and that kind of thing. Um, So that was such a range of experience, I'm sure. Definitely. I found that really good grounding. And I suppose working in the NHS as well, you know, it's all about education and like developing your learning and that kind of thing. So I found that really good. Um, And then I got a job in the same hospital as a stroke specialist. So Mm. I was working with a multidisciplinary team. So we had um, like physios, speech and language, OT, psychologists and nurse. um, And we'd work between inpatient and outpatient uh, with people who've had a stroke. And again, that was great experience, really rewarding. And then um, I got a job as a pediatric dietitian again in the same department. So that was working from anything up to newborn babies, up to teenagers um, with a range of different nutritional issues. And I really enjoyed that as well. I'm sure that was a big, I remember when we did pediatrics in medical school, it was like going from adult medicine to this whole other type of medicine, you know, little people medicine, we used to call it. And you felt like you were diving right into the deep end all over again. Exactly. It's similar for nutrition, actually, like all the requirements and all the supplements and even the Mm -hmm. conditions that you see, they are quite different. Um, But I did really enjoy that. And um, then what did I do? So I then I wanted to go traveling. So I was already doing bits of freelance on the side and I'd started my blog, Dietetically Speaking, back in 2015. Mm. And so I, I really started that blog because I was just getting quite, um, I suppose, just frustrated about all the nutritional nonsense I was seeing. And I was having a lot of rants about it, I suppose, to my friends <laughs> and my boyfriend and things. And my boyfriend really encouraged me to start this blog. And He's a programmer, designer, so he really helped me to actually, you know, make a website and a logo and everything. 
very um, useful skill to have in definitely <laughs> oh very useful yeah um so I was already kind of doing that on the side and then I decided that okay I'm just going to go fully freelance and you know just focus on writing articles and doing nutrition consultancy and things while I traveled so I did that for uh, between January 2017 to January 2018 and um, so yes yeah, so I had that sort of year of travel there and now I'm back in Dublin at the moment I'm covering for the fabulous Orla Walsh dietitian and um, so I'm back seeing patients yeah it's really really great um, seeing patients again face to face which I'm really enjoying and I'm still doing some of my writing and consultancy kind of work on the side but that's kind of my story. Fantastic and I think um, I, I think I came across your social media and your blog. I think it was through um, Hazel Wallace, the food medic. You do a lot of writing for her website as well. I think That's that was right. Yeah. I yeah. I, I um, contribute to her educational hub. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember loving how and you did a talk at UCD actually around the same time. And that was how we ended up. Uh, remember, we went up and chatted for like two hours. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. A testament to having things in common to rant about. Um, yep. But I was just such a fan of how balanced your content was and how um your ability really to translate the science into uh, relatable messages and I suppose everyday messages and like you say cutting right through that nutrient nonsense and just giving a sensible approach to nutrition because we know that obviously there's just so many myths that are confusing everyone at the moment and that in particular that approach you take is is really why I wanted to bring you on I think it's just really refreshing to see we've sort of all seen so many accounts now that are promoting like all the quick fixes and we know health isn't about that and I just really love your approach in that way um oh, thank you that's really great to hear and do you have any specialist interests as a uh, as a dietitian Maeve yeah so I have fairly broad interests and I haven't really settled into one specific niche at the moment but mm. I have kind of narrowed it down to I suppose about four main areas of interest um, so mm. as I was saying, with my experience in pediatrics, I really like nutrition for babies, children, teenagers. Mm. So that would be kind of one area. Mm. Um, I find food allergies and intolerances. I find that really interesting and rewarding as well, because that can make such a real difference to a client's life, you know, when they can manage Absolutely. to get on top of these intolerances or if it's, you know, some food allergies can be life threatening. So obviously really important as well. Sure. Um, then the sustainable eating, plant-based diet side of things. I think that's another really interesting and really important area. Definitely. Um, so really enjoy that. And then more recently, um, I've been delving into more kind of the relationship with food side of things, disordered eating, learning more about intuitive eating as well. Mm. Um, so I find that another really rewarding area as well. That's brilliant. I think there's a lovely mix of I suppose maybe the more well-known areas that nutritionists and dietitians work in and then the very new areas um, like that intuitive eating piece that we've I, again I don't pretend to have read into it very much um, yet I want to um, but it is very new and then uh, same with sustainability that's something I know a little bit more about but they're two very much uh, emerging areas which is which is fascinating. True definitely both exciting areas definitely. Absolutely um, and I suppose what I kind of wanted to um, chat to you about in this part one uh uh, episode I should say and Maeve was just first of all looking at some of the really big myths around nutrition because I suppose it really is the health behavior that's most talked about like I talk about sort of four major health behaviors from a lifestyle point of view and food is and diet are obviously one of them but area physical activity and um, smoking and alcohol from a public health perspective are sort of our big four but I think food is probably the one that's most confusing for people yeah, I'd agree. I get a lot of messages from people or, you know, clients I see face to face and they just are genuinely interested in how they can take the best care of themselves from a nutrition mm. side of things. But they're just so confused because there are so many conflicting and sensationalist messages. Absolutely. And a lot of that's been fueled by Netflix as well, which is mm -hmm. just so unfortunate. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So in this episode, what I really wanted to do was chat through some of those really common myths, as opposed to maybe the more niche ones that are emerging. Maybe we could look at them in part two. But I wanted to clarify some of those for our listeners and hopefully remove some fears around foods that we've had around for such a long time. And I think maybe because of these media myths, we've gotten a little bit afraid of them. Um, so I might start by just asking you from your experience, Clinthy, what are the most common myths you see confusing people, whether that's in clinic or online? So I think the top ones that I see are still around fats and carbs because mm. obviously, you know, they're a big part of our diet. And I see a lot of people who are really scared of carbs and feel, you know, carbs are bad. I have to avoid them and have been heavily restricting carbs sometimes for a long time. And yeah. then on the opposite side of things, I see people 
um, really scared about fats and think that we need to avoid almost all fat in the diet. And and then people who are just really confused and, you know, in the middle of things, because we do get these sensationalist messages about both of these nutrients. Absolutely. So, so they're the big two, really, that I see most often. Well, maybe we'll dive into them sort of one at a time, because I think that's like you say that from what I've seen. And as I say, I'm a doctor, not a nutritionist or dietitian, but as an observer watching these debates, it does seem to be whoever has a new book out that promotes a low carb or low fat approach um, mm. tends to be on either side of the debate. And it just sort of leaves the middle ground, which is balance um, a little bit lost in translation. Um, so let's have a look. Will we chat about fats maybe first, because that is definitely one of the biggest and longest running debates. And you've written quite a bit on your on your blog about this. Um, and I do think it's maybe a little bit more in the news in the UK than in Ireland, but it's still confusing nonetheless, because we can access media very easily anyway, no matter where it's from. Um, so maybe let's start by chatting through sort of what we should consider as maybe more healthy fats versus those that are unhealthier. Maybe we've seen a lot of good versus bad fats, bad fats, I should say, in terms of labels people apply to those foods. Would mm-hmm. you chat us through some food examples of those just to clarify it a bit? Yeah, that's a good place to start. So, you know, the ones that are really the healthier type of fats are the unsaturated fats. And these are the ones that we should be eating more often. And they're found in foods like olive oil, rapeseed oil, sunflower oil, avocados, also avocado oil, nuts and seeds would be some mm. of the main sources. But then we also have our essential fatty acids. So these are fats that our body can't make itself. So it's essential that we have them in the diet so that our body can be as healthy as it can be, really. Yeah. Um, and they would be omega-3 and omega-6. Okay. So we mainly get omega-3, you know, most people have heard a lot about this, but in oily fish. So sure. in like salmon, mackerel, herring, sardines, that kind of thing. Um, we also get some omega-3 in like soya-based products, um, in rapeseed oil, in some types of seeds, like chia seeds, flax seeds. So those types of omega-3 that we get in the foods that I mentioned that aren't oily fish, um, mm. they're a type of omega-3 that is kind of converted into the type of omega-3 that we get in oily fish okay and so it's not as efficient in the body but Mm. if somebody say you know chooses not to have oily fish in their diet and then it's still useful to have these other foods in to provide the the kind of plant-based sources of omega-3 okay okay and And, sorry mm -hmm. yeah keep going yeah just omega-6 I was just going to say there so it's really again in lots of nuts and seeds like I suppose sunflower seeds walnuts cashews almonds that kind of thing Mm. So keep chucking the avocado on the toast if we can. <laughs> yeah, avocado is great. Yeah. Uh, as long as you get the right one. That's really important. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You have to do the test. You know, where you hold it in your hand and press your thumb on the top. I don't know this yeah. test. What is, yeah, is this? this is the like avocado ripeness. That's how you check if an avocado is ripe. Oh, and what if the little nub on the top comes off, is it? Or No, it's basically so if you hold it and um, so like the wider bit of the avocado is kind yeah. of in the palm of your hand and then you get your thumb and like press the top of the avocado. And if oh it's soft God. at that top bit, that's a good way of testing it. Well, there you learn something new every day. That's fantastic. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask actually, just as unrelated topic, if people don't eat fish, should they be concerned about not getting those? Um, you mentioned sort of the EPA and the DHA versus the omega three in plants. Should people be thinking about a supplement in that context, or like what's the sort of take home there? Yeah, that's something else that I get asked about quite a bit actually. Um, so the studies show that. Types of omega-3, as I said, that we get in the plant-based foods and even in the supplements, they aren't as healthy for us as the type of omega-3 that we get in oily fish. So even in terms of supplements, um, so it used to be advice, say the NICE guidelines in the UK used to say that um, if somebody is at high risk of heart disease or has had a heart attack, then they should take omega-3 supplements if they don't eat oily fish. But that advice has actually changed because... The evidence just isn't good enough to show that the supplements are as good as the oily fish. Okay. But that being said, I think if I think that's kind of to say that basically if you can and if you're ethically okay with eating oily fish, then you know that's the best thing to do. Mm. But at the same time, if somebody is um, you know, I suppose vegan and isn't gonna have any oily fish, and especially if say they're pregnant, um, where it's really important that the fetus is getting oily fish for brain development and things, so the omega threes. Yeah. Um, so in that case, you know, then it can be important to have the omega three supplement, mm-hmm. or I suppose you know people who are vegan in general that can be useful. And as I said, including those plant based sources of omega threes, so like um yeah, like the chia seeds and yeah. the rapeseed oil and you know those kinds of foods. Um, sure. that that's still a good thing to do. They're still healthy foods, and 
the body will convert that some of that to the yeah the kind of EPA the omega-3 that our body uses. I'll, I'll mention now we'll get on to sort of the more unha- I hate using words like good and bad and I only mean to use those labels in the context of what's been used in the media because I know that's where people have been thinking about them but just before I do have you ever seen I just really thought it was funny with walnuts the way they talk about those fatty acids for our brain health you see walnuts just look like little brains do you ever look at walnuts? Yeah exactly yeah really funny actually (laughs) (laughs) one of those weird evolutionary things um sorry total digression for our listeners (laughs) there um but could we chat a little bit maybe so we've talked about a lot of those good um healthy fat sources and then what are sort of the more unhealthy ones that have maybe been demonized in the media um and and should they be demonized or should we be more aware of them i guess or is it a bit more of a balance that we need yeah so it really does always come back to balance moderation and context Mm. so with the The ones that we should eat less of, I suppose, are the trans fat and saturated fat. Um, So trans fat we find in foods like pies, pastries, fried foods. But actually in the UK and Ireland at the moment, we don't have a high intake of these trans fats on average because manufacturers have been really good at reducing the amount of trans fats in foods because they're mainly found in processed foods. Yeah. So actually, we don't massively need to worry about the trans fats. Uh, The saturated fat is something that we still consume too much of. And Mm. again, you do find that in, again, fried foods, in pastries. It would be like the visible fat that you see on meat um, in butter, coconut oil. And you do get it in dairy. But the latest evidence is showing that the type of fat, saturated fat that we get in dairy might actually be quite good for our heart. So that one is in the middle. Uh, But those other sources of saturated fat would be ones to have less often. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That I think that definitely clarifies things quite nicely. Um, I actually get asked quite a bit, just as a side note, with talking about fats. What oils would you advise people to cook with, or would you sort of put it in a context of what dish you're cooking, or from a health perspective, would you have differences you'd be aware of? Yeah. So the two main things to think about when you're choosing an oil for cooking with is how heat stable it is, and okay. then how healthy the fats are in the oil as well. So the how heat stable an oil is we call that the smoke point so it's okay. how high you can heat it before it starts breaking down and producing um trans fat and aldehydes so different chemicals mm-hmm. um so when we take both of those things into consideration so our healthiest type of unsaturated fats and the ones that are most heat stable then the best ones to cook with are avocado oil so that's the one that does best when it's heated and okay. it's more expensive though Um, So another alternative is olive oil, but not extra virgin. So like refined olive oil, the one that's usually in the brown bottle. Okay. Um, So that one's quite high as well in terms of smoke points. And rapeseed oil is another good one. Mm. And a really cost efficient one in Ireland is if you buy an oil, it's just called vegetable oil, then that's actually rapeseed oil. If you look on the ingredients, it'll say 100% rapeseed oil. Okay. So we, you know, we do see, like a good cost beneficial option. I think that's yeah, really, crazy. <laughs> really important. Exactly. It has to be practical and realistic. So um, yeah, definitely. Because the last so time yeah, I so saw, that, like, I'm sure avocado mm-hmm. oil is is great, but like, a, like with all these new things, they are often the most expensive, aren't they? And oh yeah. That's definitely consideration we don't probably say enough on social media. Um, yeah. I know you mentioned because I get asked a lot about when we talk about oils about coconut oil, and obviously there was this sort of huge frenzy over coconut oil a couple of years ago and it was touted as almost like a panacea of of health and I know since then it's sort of maybe things have gone backwards a little bit in that context because we know it actually is quite high in saturated fat mm. um so should people be avoiding that to cook with or what do you think I mean I sometimes do use it for flavoring in baking or sometimes if I want a curry to flavor more a little bit like coconut yeah. um so it's like you say context I guess but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it yeah so that's the thing so There's no food that we need to fully avoid unless we're allergic to it or unless it's poisonous. So if you like the taste of something, then absolutely there's nothing that we need to avoid. Mm. Um, But in terms of coconut oil, so you're right, it it was promoted as having all these health benefits. And now the evidence is quite clear that I mean, even at the time, you know, the evidence was clear that um, it's really high in saturated fat. It's 82 percent saturated fat, which is the wow, one that we should be eating high. a bit less of. Really high. If you think of butter is 50 percent saturated fat and lard is 40 percent. So, wow, okay. yeah, so it, it definitely. So it's one to have, you know, in small amounts, in moderation um, and even in terms of cooking. So refined coconut oil is does have a high smoke point. So that one is quite stable when you heat it. But mm. actually, the 
in general, it's like raw, unrefined coconut oil. That's the most common type that you see. Yeah. And that one actually doesn't have a high smoke point. So okay. actually, it's not even a great choice in terms of cooking. Mm. Um, but it's not, I mean, ones with a lower smoke point, you know, it's not like they're going to do any big damage. It's just if you're doing it frequently and you just want to yeah. be making sure you're using the healthiest option, then it will be those other ones I mentioned, like the refined olive oil, the rapeseed oil, uh, the avocado oil. Uh, sunflower oil is good as well. Cool. Um, but yeah, so coconut oil, basically, we don't need to add it. We shouldn't be adding it to our diet for health, but mm. small amounts, if you like the taste, is fine. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. I think we've we've gone deep on fat there. <laughs> yes, we have. Okay, let's look at the other side of that big debate that's been seen so much, which is carbohydrates. Um, and I don't think I've seen a food group more demonized, honestly, in the last, but since, well, since I've been running my blog and maybe a little bit before that. But I think we should really go back to basics on this because it's, I think carbohydrates have become a food group that despite how awesome they are, are both debated and feared as a result of all of the media confusion. Um, so let's just start with what is a carb for anyone who is not sure what exactly a carb is. Yeah, definitely good to start at the start. Um, so carbohydrate is one of our food groups. And if we're, you know, go back to like a chemical level, it's um, these foods that are made up of sugar molecules and they can be like single sugar, uh, single sugars even, or like long chains of sugars. And the longer mm -hmm. chains are like the starchier carbohydrates and fiber. So okay. in terms of actual foods, so we get them in starchy foods like potato, pasta, rice, bread, cereals, grains. And we also get carbohydrates naturally found in fruit and in certain vegetables, in dairy and then in sugary foods and drinks. That's where it's the more refined carbohydrate. So basically sugar. OK. And why are they so important? So carbohydrates, I mean. Yeah. So carbohydrate is actually the main source of fuel for our body. And actually, 50% of the total calories that we eat today in a day should come from carbohydrates. So if you think about it, I got this analogy from Orla Walsh, actually. So yeah. if you think of putting petrol in a car to fuel yeah. the car, so carbohydrate is like our petrol for our body. It's the fuel that really keeps us going. It feeds the brain and our muscles and gives us energy. And, you know, our body can convert other nutrients to use as a source of energy, but it's not as efficient. And that's why, you know, if you get kind of like kind of sluggish brain fog, that kind of thing, if you haven't mm. eaten carbs, you know, that's a really standard. Or if you feel like you can't exercise to your best ability, that's, you know, that can often happen if you're not having enough carbs to fuel your mm. body properly. And I think that's probably it's really because I think a lot of people, obviously, we talk about a healthy diet. You know, it's it's part of a lifestyle and we, we promote a healthy lifestyle, too. And a healthy lifestyle, if we're encouraging more physical activity, like we have to have that energy. Um, And yet we sort of have this dichotomy where we have this food group that's totally demonized while people are getting more and more active. Um, So I think it's really important that I, I love that analogy. That's really good. You have yeah. to run on like my car doesn't run on, on anything that isn't petrol. So <laughs> can't run on empty. <laughs> exactly. That's it. And um, I suppose the next step of that is definitely if you're exercising. So, you know, if you're driving your car for longer, then you need to put more petrol in the tank. And that's, you know, that's how it works with carbs as well. And yeah. it's about, you know, especially around exercise, like timing it around when you are exercising, making sure you definitely have carbs, you know, before and after. Brilliant. And I guess we've seen so much demonization of sugar and conversely a lot of promotion of low carb trends now there are nuances to that particularly with recent research and I'm in terms of like I know there's been some discussion around low carb diets and diabetes and I haven't even looked into that science myself so I'm not going into that side of things I think we're sticking to the basics here um, yeah. but given the importance of carbohydrates that we've just chatted about could you separate out for us which carbohydrate sources we should sort of be giving more of a pride of place in our diets and being the main petrol we put in the tank and those which should be more of a moderation, not deprivation approach to their consumption, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I like that way of phrasing it, actually, because it's it's not like, what should we have? What should we avoid? It's yeah. you know, what should we prioritize, I suppose, or have most often? But, mm. you know, not that we have to avoid anything. Yeah. Um, so those types of ones that we should be having more often would be the carbs that we get in whole grains, in fruit, veg and dairy. So the types of carbs that we get in those foods and also, I mean, starchy foods like, um, you know, potatoes, sweet potato. Yeah. Um, so those kind of carbs, they're not classed as free sugars. So there's only a limit on, you know, the amount of sugar we should have for the refined sugars. So, you know, the sugar that you get in sugary drinks or in cakes, biscuits, that kind of thing, or just sugar yeah. itself. Um, so it really should be those whole grains, fruit, veg, dairy. 
So the bottom of our, or the I suppose the the main of our um, our I know we have the help, eat well plate in the UK and the food pyramid in Ireland, but really they're sort of the main shelves, really, aren't they? Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Um, I think we've sort of gone into the basics and some handy take homes on those two really important macronutrients. Um, so what I'll do next is, since we were just chatting a little bit about dairy there within um, talking about fats and carbohydrates, I think it's really important that we do chat about dairy as um, an overall food group, because you and I have had conversations about this and how while different fat sources and carb sources have been demonized, dairy has too. And I suppose a disclaimer I'll make here as well before we chat in, dive into this topic is that when we talk about meat and dairy on in our podcast chats, it is outside of any ethical and moral viewpoints people might have about mm-hmm. consuming animal products. And I just think that's important to say. We're purely talking about it from a, a health and nutrition perspective. Um, but could you tell us, maybe? so why is, I mean, dairy has been demonized definitely, I think a lot, maybe due to Netflix documentaries, but why is dairy so important for our health and where do we get it from and what are its nutritional benefits that it gives us? Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. There has been a lot of demonization of dairy. And from a health point of view, it's a really nutritious food. It's, you know, it's almost one of the most complete food groups that we have. So it mm. has, um, it's a complete protein source. So it has all the essential amino acids in it that our body needs. And um, so it's really good for our muscles and for growth and repair. Um, you know, with sports, it's really good. Yeah. And um, it also has, um, you know, a good source of calcium. So what our bones are made of. So that's really vital. Yeah. Um, in terms of bone health, it also has a good source of phosphorus, which is also another important nutrient for our bones. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has some B vitamins in there. You know, it has some B12, which is really important for our neurological health. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, our thinking and processing and, um, you know, the messages that are sent around our body. Mm. Um, it has some other B vitamins in there as well. It has, as I said, it has some natural carbohydrates as well. Yeah. And it's that combination, actually, of the um, the protein and the carbohydrates and the fact that it's a source of fluid. And it also has some electrolytes in there. So it makes it like a natural sports drink. And studies have actually found that um, people, you know, they've compared milk or chocolate milk with a, you know, especially formulated sports drink. And often yeah. just the milk or chocolate milk actually comes out on top in terms of sports recovery because it is yeah. just such a complete food. Yeah. And I mean, I remember seeing actually, I think I did see that there was nutrition um, for sport talk at UCD um, a few weeks ago and they were chatting about that. And they actually had Avonmore there doing chocolate milk tasting. And I was like, I would totally <laughs> take this all the time after sport. Um, yeah. Thank you for for, for dis- discussing that, because I think there was some very um, scaremongering claims made about dairy, particularly with documentaries like What the Health on Netflix last year. And I'm not going to go into calling out specific documentaries, but I just think it created a huge amount of confusion um, and may have led to people either reducing or eliminating it for uh, outside of ethical and moral viewpoints, I guess, just out of fear, which I think is a really unfair you know, thing to put on people like we shouldn't, as you say, someone said to me recently, we shouldn't fear food unless we've stolen it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I thought was really, really good. Um, and you wrote a really brilliant article about some of those myths around dairy um, on your blog, which is there if people do want to read it, because you, you went through, I think, about 10 or 11 of them. But I just thought it would be really useful if we chatted through some of the sort of the bigger ones that you touched on in the article, if that's OK with you. Yeah, sounds good. Um, you chatted, I suppose, in the article as well about dairy and it's important for, we just said there about dairy and bone health. I think one of the myths that I've seen out there is about dairy leaching calcium from our bones. Um, can we debunk that? What do you think? Definitely. So this myth originated from the alkaline diet. So this mm. is just a ridiculous fad diet that says you should eat certain foods to make your body more alkaline. So to increase the pH of your blood. So it's just, you know, it's just nonsense. That's just not how our physiology and oh. digestion works um, but you know that aside so basically so that side of the argument is just complete nonsense um, and there's other studies that have found so higher levels of fracture rates in countries that have a high intake of dairy so then you know people have said okay well they're having a lot of dairy in this country but they're also getting a lot of fractures so mm. it must be the dairy you know it must be I've you seen know, that generalization is, made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So first of all, these are observational studies, which we can't always say, you know, X equals Y. We can't always get that cause and effect relationship yeah. from that. 
Um, and these studies didn't often take important factors into account, such as vitamin D intake. Absolutely. So some of these studies, you know, if we think of like in the UK and Ireland where we don't get a lot of vitamin D exposure and we need vitamin D to absorb our calcium. Mm. So if you're looking at studies at calcium intake and not taking vitamin D into account, then it's just irrelevant, really. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then other vitamins, so like vitamin K as well, is important for um, making sure that calcium is properly deposited in the bones. So, so the studies didn't really take all of that into account. Whereas if you look at a study from the same country, from people who do consume dairy and those who don't, it's those who do consume dairy that have better bone health overall. Yeah, thank you. I think that was concisely debunked. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, there's a lot of evidence that dairy is good for our bones. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really, really important message to get out there because I've seen a lot of people, um, I mean, whether it's like I say, there's environmental motivations, there's animal welfare motivations, but if it's a fear motivation that leads to removal of dairy from the diet and regardless of the motivation, if that's done without consideration of where that calcium is going to come from, mm-hmm. you know, that that's really, really worrying from a bone health perspective, particularly when we look at the ages people might be doing this at if they're young and they're still forming bone. I think that's a really, really important consideration that often isn't taken into account at the individual level. Um, which does actually frightens me absolutely definitely and also I mean the one a nutrient I didn't mention actually in terms of dairy is iodine as well absolutely so dairy is our main source of iodine which is really important for our thyroid health and our metabolism and that's one that often gets overlooked as well so Mm. there's a lot of nutritional considerations if somebody is to avoid dairy then you know there are a lot of gaps that need to be filled in terms of nutrition and just as a little digression Um, Because I think the iodine one, you're right, that definitely doesn't get talked about enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And while with calcium, I know some plant milks are fortified with calcium, which might people might make that argument. Um, But a lot uh, and possibly with iodine, too. But I think there's probably less foods that we're aware of of where to get iodine from. Um, I know seaweed is one of them from a plant perspective, but I don't think that's widely consumed by the Irish population, despite being a maritime country. Exactly. Yeah. So there in terms of our sources of iodine it's really dairy and oily fish and mm. um, so if somebody isn't consuming those well you're right seaweed is a really good source um in some cases it can contain a bit too much so for example you know pregnant women aren't advised to eat seaweed more than once okay. a week because it might actually be have too much iodine in it mm. um so no it can be a really useful source but you're right it's not commonly consumed food in ireland yeah and then I suppose I have two other myths I was hoping you might be able to chat through for us um, about dairy that people might, I suppose it might be a source of fear for people. Um, I did an, uh, a nutrition for children workshop for parents with um, the Healthy UCD group in February. And one that we discussed as part of that workshop was around dairy and hormone content um, and some concerns people had had as a result of Netflix documentaries. And I was wondering if you could chat through that for us. Yes. So a lot of these fears, as you said, can come from these documentaries and a lot of these are based in the US. So Mm. it's first of all important to make the distinction that within the EU, the laws around dairy production are very different than those in the the US. Mm. So, for example, um, it's happening now less often in the US as well. But sometimes this there is a specific growth hormone. It's called RBST that can be used in dairy production. Whereas okay. in the EU, that's banned. So we don't have that hormone added in. You know, the cattle isn't given dairy. this hormone yeah, to produce dairy. Um, yep. so, so basically, so first of all, that doesn't happen. And mm. then, so other concerns are around um, the insulin-like growth factor in milk. So again, this is naturally present in milk uh, because cows are mammals. Mm. But actually, the level in milk is much lower than the level that is naturally found in our digestive system, in our digestive juice. So, you know, we we haven't found that consuming milk that naturally contains some of this IGF-1 and actually that that impacts our hormones or our, you know, our body. Basically, it just Mm. seems that we basically digest it and it doesn't impact us. Brilliant. Again, pretty black and white. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) (laughs) And one, I suppose, probably the, the one I thought was most important that you did sort of go through in your article and the last one I'll ask you about was and um, people saying dairy quotation marks causes cancer and um, because I just think that is a very very damaging statement for uh, I suppose any documentary or anecdotal um, description to to say or make um, because it's obviously such a huge health topic and really it's probably the reason why a lot of people have become quite afraid of the food group um, can we talk about that and where that sort of claim came from and and why it's not true 
Yeah, I really think that messages around diet and cancer are some of the most insidious and dangerous. Absolutely. So yeah. in terms of dairy, it's there's really no strong evidence that dairy causes cancer. And what the latest evidence is showing is that consuming dairy might actually help to reduce the risk of certain types of cancer, especially mm. colorectal cancer. Although the evidence isn't strong enough yet to say that for sure. So, sure. Um, you know, I think it's just to say that there's no reason to be scared of consuming dairy in terms of cancer risk. There's no strong evidence that that's the case at all. Brilliant. Thank you for that one. Um, I think that probably brings us nicely on to um, the last topic I was going to ask you about as part of this first chat we do, because um, we've chatted a little bit, um, sort of touched on the sort of environmental considerations around our food consumption. I know you mentioned that sustainability is one of your interests. And like I say, it's it's a conversation you and I have had quite a bit over the last while, particularly yeah. with all of the media headlines we've seen around it, particularly in January with the Eat Lancet publication. Um around planetary health and eating for for that. Um, And I suppose the most recent dietary trend to sweep through social media has been this uh, quotation marks plant-based approach. And a lot of this has come from the threat climate change poses to to global society. um, And that's led to calls for um, a shift to Western dietary patterns. And so in the developed world towards more sustainable food consumption and production. And I guess we do know meat and dairy do produce the greatest carbon emissions from a dietary perspective because mm-hmm. of the ruminant animals that are farmed to produce these food um, products. But the concept of sustainable diets is still really, really new. And I think it's very important that this concept doesn't lead to another sort of polarizing debate and one where extremes such as, for example, veganism are promoted over maybe a more sustainable approach um, and that we do balance sort of nutritional considerations um, with the, in this debate too so I suppose just to start could you define a plant-based diet for us um, and maybe highlight the difference between vegetarianism and veganism and again I'll make the disclaimer that this discussion is really more from a fact perspective and health perspective it's not about um, an individual's ethical or moral considerations around food consumption that is a, a person's choice I suppose. Yes and that's an important point and just to say as well you know while I'm speaking about you know the different health benefits and health risks um, it is completely separate. So it's from a health point yeah. of view I'm talking about. Um, yeah. And, you know, because there are some strong arguments from an ethical and environmental point of view for, you know, reducing and avoiding plant or animal based products. Um, but, you know, we're purely talking about health here. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. So first of all, a plant based diet is a diet that is made up mainly of plants. But it is important to say that it doesn't mean plant only. So you can be following a plant based diet and still have some meat and dairy in your diet. So it doesn't need to be an all or nothing approach, which I think gets a little bit lost sometimes in the messages. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then so in terms of the different types of plant based diets. So we have vegetarian and there's a few different types of vegetarian as well. But the. I suppose the most common type of vegetarian is the lacto-ovo vegetarian, which means eating no meat, chicken or fish, but including eggs and dairy in the diet. Mm. Whereas on the other end of the scale, you would have veganism. So that's no products are consumed at all. So no meat, poultry, fish, dairy, eggs or honey. And then it it goes a bit of a step further as well. So um, I suppose like leather and cosmetics and things that might contain animal ingredients or animal derived ingredients would also be avoided so that's, I suppose, the spectrum. And then you also have things like flexitarian, where it's, you know, someone who consumes mainly vegetarian diet, but maybe when they eat out, they eat meat or, you know, once or twice a week, they have meat or fish or something like that. So they're kind of some of the main different types of plant-based diets. It's definitely quite a spectrum, isn't it? I think that's it is. the key thing, probably. I mean, it's like I say, the plant-based or hashtag plant-based, whatever way you want to look at it, <laughs> is definitely the most recent trend. And yet there's so many nuances to that. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes people might perceive that it's synonymous with veganism, but really it isn't. And I know the British Dietetic Association has probably my favorite definition, whereby there is the, like from a plant, from defining a plant-based diet perspective, there is the inclusion of a small amount, as you say, of mm-hmm. meat. Um, but it, it really does seem to mean something a little bit different to everyone, which makes translating a message in the context of sustainability and the environment quite tricky um because there's so much confusion out there and um, so thank you for sort of clarifying I think it really is a spectrum and I think that's that's an important point to emphasize um if people I guess have been seeing all of these headlines and they do have um 
considerations around maybe wanting to um, maybe bring meat consumption, for example, to within dietary guidelines and, and maybe if they're over consuming it, they want to balance it out a little bit more. Um, what nutritional considerations do we need to be mindful of if we do uh, reduce meat in our diet? Yeah, so so meat is very nutritious and it's a really good source of, so red meat in particular would contain protein, iron, vitamin B12, zinc, selenium. Um, so it's, you know, making sure that we're filling those nutritional gaps if meat is being reduced or if it's being avoided altogether. Mm. Um, if somebody is still including some meat in the diet, then having red meat, you know, twice a week or so is a good way of um, ensuring you have a good intake of iron in the diet. Um, but other sources, so in terms of protein, things like tofu, beans, lentils, chickpeas, nuts, seeds, uh, mycoprotein products, you know, which is what corn is made from, okay. um, whole grains, that kind of thing. And then in terms of so iron, again, beans, nuts and seeds also contain iron, as do whole grains, some fortified breakfast cereals um, then green leafy veg and dried fruit as well. And if we're thinking about B12, vitamin B12, um, nutritional yeast has some nutrition, uh, vitamin B12 in there and yeast est- right. extract and fortified cereals and things. Um, but in terms of B12, that wouldn't be as reliable as having, say, a vitamin B12 supplement because mm. different foods, you know, they'll have kind of varying amounts of the nutrient in there. Okay. Um, and then so for selenium, a good tr- tip is to have one Brazil nut a day because okay. that's basically all the requirements for an adult for selenium um so that can be quite an easy addition into the diet i actually i think they're so underrated i love brazil nuts. <laughs> yeah they're really tasty i like them yeah i do wish nuts weren't so expensive in general but they are like i do love mm-hmm. a good bag of mixed nuts um true thank you for that that's brilliant and i was wondering I, I suppose i think red meat is perhaps another food that has become a source of fear mm-hmm. and I, I get asked about it quite a bit from a health perspective and there was quite a recent um article about bacon or a rasher a day or something along those lines and i know mm-hmm. um yourself and quite a few people nutrition uh, professionals that i follow on instagram did um do a quite a nice breakdown of that study is red meat a, f- a food we should be fearing or is it just a case again um as would be my approach about moderation yeah, so again, it does come back to the quality and the quantity and the context. Mm. So as I was saying there about red meat in general, um, it's something that as a nation, I suppose we do consume an awful lot of. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the environment and in terms of health, um, it would be beneficial if we cut back on average. Um, mm. But again, so the recommendation is if for somebody who consumes a lot of meat every day, it would be trying to limit that to about 70 grams. And there's some nice infographics from Cancer Research UK, which kind of highlights different examples. Um, But generally, that would be um, like, say, if it's like the processed meat, it would be like um, two rashers, um, two two sausages, um, like a small sort of four ounce steak, um, a quarter pounder burger, that kind of thing. In terms of what Uh, 70 grams is. Yeah, yeah, 70 grams, exactly. And then so what? is more important to be reducing is the processed red meats and that's things like you know the rashers the deli meats like sliced ham that kind of thing um, and sausages so they are produced using a chemical called nitrates and that's what's linked to an increased risk of bowel cancer so again it's not that you know you can never have these foods or that consuming these will definitely cause cancer nothing like that it's just that we should be having them a little bit less often. So it should be more of, I suppose, a sometimes food rather than an everyday food. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And I really love how you've put that because I think a lot of the confusion people might have um, leads to, I suppose, the the message around bringing overconsumption to consumption within guidelines being mm-hmm. overlooked. I think that's probably the message that we could get to the population the most and the one which would benefit the environment and our own health at the same time by just bringing things to within guidelines as a, as the first step. Definitely, because, you know, there have been some studies that have looked at the environmental impact of following the national guidelines, like in mm. the UK and in Ireland. Um, and, you know, that led to 30 percent improvements in, um, you know, reducing CO2 emissions and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and then also from a health point of view, that's linked to really good improvements in overall health. And um, so mm. that, I think that's a really good message that we don't have to be really all or nothing, really extreme. But if we can most of the time stick to, you know, eating 
mainly plants with, you know, whole grains, fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, beans. But then, you know, that kind of flexitarian approach is quite a nice, yeah. a nice way of doing it. Whereas, you know, there's some red meat and there's some dairy and it is it does come back to moderation. Yeah. And I, I suppose I think it's like doing doing it in a context that works for your lifestyle. Like, I mean, I know there's been a huge popularization of meat free Monday, but it might not suit someone to do meat free Monday and they might do meat free Friday or meat free Sunday, you know, yeah. or even just like you say, bringing that message around just eating within guidelines. Um, I think that's definitely one of the most powerful things. This is me with my public health hat on. <laughs> but I think that's definitely what as a population, if I know in Ireland, this is definitely true and it's true in the UK. But if we just did that, the environment would benefit so much without having to, you know, think about ex- totally excluding specific food groups and worrying about the nutritional um, deficiencies that that could result if, if we didn't know enough about replacing them. Exactly. Um, and I suppose from a like a relationship with food and a mental health side of things as well, having that mm-hmm. level of flexibility with our diet can be really important for some people. So yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of benefits to having that little bit of flexibility, that little bit of wiggle room. Yeah, my next question for you was actually about sort of small differences to make to our plate to help the environment. But I think that we've kind of said that really, you know, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't have to be going meat free. Um, it, it can it completely, you know, it might just be a small thing and maybe thinking about what um, maybe more environmentally and plant derived foods we can add to our plate and just bring the consumption of the, the foods with the biggest emissions, you know, to within guidelines a little bit. Um yeah. It's something I'm currently writing a, liter- a lit- literature review on for college, and it's oh, important. Interesting. It is. It's fascinating now. Mm. Well, we'll see what kind of grade I get, but <laughs> it's it's really interesting to see that, like you know, some of the foods with the lowest emissions are the really high processed, highly processed, like sugary snacks, but they're mm. not the best for our health. And you could, you know, be meat free living on those, but that's not the best for your health. You know, so but you might think you're helping the environment, but you might not be helping yourself in the long term. Um, so it is a bit of a balance, definitely. Definitely, because I think sometimes people forget as well that a sustainable diet needs to be nutritious and mm. it needs to be culturally acceptable and affordable. I mean, it's not just the actual environmental side of things. There's a whole load of things to consider. Definitely. Um, so I was actually going to ask you a little bit about meat substitutes. Um, and I might do that as sort of a finishing point for this episode. And we can maybe go into um, some of the more recent dietary myths and fads that we've seen um, or specifically in, in our part two but could we touch on that just for a couple of minutes to finish off um, because we've seen oh, I don't know it depends what accounts you follow but um, and we're a bit maybe far behind in Ireland compared to the UK but there's been a lot of chat about lab-grown meat and meat substitutes um, things like Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger and I know you've gotten to try one or both of those and I was just curious what your thoughts were on these meat substitutes like are they something that are do you think going to expand and take off as an industry um, are they healthy and, and just what your thoughts are on them? Yeah so I think that this technology is really exciting um, because they so what they've done say with impossible burger for example is they took an actual beef burger and they looked at the chemical constituents of that and then they replicated that using plant-based products so it's much more realistic in terms of um, the taste and how it cooks and how it looks and everything and then also nutritionally it's a lot more similar than other types of vegetarian burgers that we have at the moment so it contains more like the same amount of protein as an ordinary burger would and it also contains um, some a heme source of iron. So generally with plant-based foods, it's non-heme iron, which okay. isn't always used as efficiently by our body as the heme sources of iron. Um, so what they've done, they've actually used soybean roots and oh, they right. created a type of, um, of heme iron from that, which is really exciting. Um, so I suppose it is just important to mention, though, that so although they are a bit more nutritious and they have like vitamin B12 and things added as well, they still can be high in fat and salt. So, you know, it would still be mm. something, you know, not an absolute everyday food, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but they are more nutritious. So I think especially for somebody who say really enjoys the taste of meat, but they just want to cut back a little bit um, or, you know, for ethical reasons, if somebody decides to be vegan. But again, they miss meat or they like the taste, then yeah. I think they're a fantastic option. So, yeah, Doesn't- I tried the impossible. Mm-hmm. yeah sorry I think you're going to mention what I was going to ask you about so keep going <laughs> yeah so um so I tried the impossible burger when I was in California um and it was really realistic like almost scarily realistic um so does it bleed yeah burgers? it does it does a bit actually so um I think it's more I suppose how it's cooked as well the one I had it yeah, was like fairly okay. well cooked 
Um, but I've seen oh, other people have it where it is. It looks a bit more, I suppose, sort of red in the middle and things. Um, that is fascinating. We'll have yeah. to see how that expands in Ireland. I think it'd be very interesting to see how the Irish population responds to something like that. But the other thing is, as well, is like any new technology, these products are probably going to start off really expensive. And I think it's probably going to be a while before we see them being maybe more affordable um, or maybe part of how food or processed foods are reformulated. Um, although we are seeing a big rise in plant-based, um, I suppose, not quite meat substitutes, but like, for example, Marks and Spencer's have launched this plant kitchen range, um, yeah. sort of like similar types of, um, you know, like, let's say vegan chicken pieces. And it's, it is a processed food, but it is mm-hmm. made with sort of similar protein content and that kind of thing. So it does look like it's taking off quite a lot. Definitely. I think now manufacturers are being more careful about actually making it more nutritionally balanced, which I think is a fantastic yeah. thing to see. Um, yeah. And actually, so the other, um, one of the new technologies you mentioned at the start there was the Beyond Burger from Beyond yeah. Meat. Um, and that one is now available in Ireland. So oh, we are kind nice. of getting there with, you know, mm. the ones that are available to us. And uh, so that's another one. It's not um, as, I suppose, technologically advanced as the Impossible Burger, but it's, you know, it is, it's a lot more similar to a beef burger than other types of plant-based burgers. Um, okay. So it's another exciting one to try. Definitely. We'll have to keep an eye out. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think maybe we'll leave our part one there and we will take up part two next week. And I know people will be waiting very uh, eagerly for the next six days to tune in. Um, Before I let you go, could you tell our listeners where to find you um, in the meantime? And um, we will take up our next episode, maybe with some of the more common myths um, and trends out there, like I said. Yeah, great. Uh, So my website is dietheticallyspeaking.com. And on Facebook and Instagram, you can find me at Dietetically Speaking. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll spell that one out. It's D-I-E-T-I-C-A-L-L-Y and then speaking. And then on Twitter, um, I couldn't fit that full name as my handle because there's a bit more of a word limit there. Oh, um, fair so enough. I'm at Dietetic Speak on Twitter. Fantastic. Maeve, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting. I know we had planned to keep this one short, but sure, look, there's far too much to chat about. Oh, there is. We're both Irish, so you just can't (laughs) stop Irish people talking. Yes. Um, Honestly, thank you so much. I think there's so much our listeners are going to take from this episode, and I'm looking forward to chatting uh, to you for next week's episode already. Um, So thanks very much. Thanks for listening, everybody. And Maeve and I would yeah no problem at all thanks for coming on um Maeve and I would love to hear from you if you do have any feedback just drop a comment on the podcast or slide into the dms and let us know what you thought or drop us an email um, and do tag us in your stories if you have a listen we would absolutely love to hear from you and we will catch you guys next week for our part two bye